So I think that Shariati is important to explore his ideas because of the impact that he's had on, on many different groups, both on the Islamic Republic, as well as on groups that are very strongly opposed to the Islamic Republic and are in some ways um, more pro-US imperialism. And so it's interesting to think about any figure that has such different, such different forces that claim him as one of their central figures. I mean, for example, Shariati is called the ideologue of the Iranian revolution, but yet in some ways he's not really the primary ideologue of the Iranian revolution. And in some ways he's also so much more than that in that he has influenced political thought relating to Iran in ways that are much more diverse than just being the um, one of the principal thinkers behind the Iranian revolution. So first of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about Shariati's biography and the intellectual influences which shaped his viewpoint. So Shariati was born in Northeastern Iran in Kahak in 1933. And he came from a family that was very politically active, that was religious in the sense that they were, his father was an Islamic teacher who opened a, who opened something called the Center for the Propagation of Islamic Truths, which not only was a center where Islamic um, theology, Islamic law was taught to students as typical in seminaries across Iran and across the wider Islamic world, but also took an active role, an active stance on the oil, on the movement for the nationalization of oil, which took place in the 1940s and 50s. This, the center was opened in 1947. So he kind of came from this background, which was, which combined nationalism in line with such figures as Mossadegh, as well as um, being deeply religious and ingrained in the Shia tradition of Islam. So as a student at the university in Mashhad, Shariati began an early involvement in politics. He started writing articles that kind of had a more simplistic version of the ideology that he would later espouse and he, um, which was influenced not only by Shia Islam, but also by diverse ideological influences, which came from such regions as, um, which came from European political traditions, as well as general kind of anti-imperialist traditions. And he was arrested when he was in university and later moved to Paris, where he completed his PhD at the Sorbonne. And it was in Paris that he really developed his more mature political ideology. And this ideology was definitely as much shaped by Shia Islam and his family's traditional involvement in the clergy, as well as, with, as um, by the many different kind of political ideologies he encountered in exile. So he, um, he'd already been influenced by a diverse set of political and philosophical writers at university in Iran, including many secular thinkers, but 
um, in Paris, he became more influenced by both Orientalists, so French lecturers who often talked about Islam, especially Islamic mysticism, and kind of had both an idealized and an overly simplified version of Islam. And by left-wing Catholics and popular or popular socialist or generally leftist figures. For example, in Paris, Chariati met Jean-Paul Sartre and Franz Fanon. And Fanon was especially influential on Chariati. Um, in the early 1960s, Chariati would make a very influential translation of Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. And an interesting side note is that Shariati translated the wretched of the earth as Mostazafini Zamin. And the word Mostazafin came to mean the oppressed in popular speech, which is definitely opposed to the more conservative or quietist religious meanings that it had previously in Farsi as the meek, the humble, or the weak. So it's kind of transforming this traditional religious, clerical kind of conservative term, which just means the meek, in the sense that it's idealized to remain meek and to not challenge the existing social structures and instead to seek to merely live the most, um, the most kind of free of sin Islamic life that you can possibly within the social conditions that you live in and not necessarily seek to change them. And it began to acquire a more explicitly political meaning something that it doesn't exactly mean the proletariat because oftentimes such figures as Khomeini would use Mostazafin and they would not only mean the urban workers or the peasantry, but they would also mean small businessmen, the bazari, which means the um, people that ran different shops in the markets. So in general, it would mean anything except for foreign corporations or the um, kind of landed aristocracy that often were on the side of the Shah. And oftentimes it had a political rather than necessarily class connotation. So, but it is interesting that this translation of the word, um, the oppressed would kind of shape Khomeini's populist period of the 1970s, which in which he embraced these kind of ideas, which you know later would not really pan out to any kind of consideration for workers' rights or any kind of workers' power in Iran. So the influence of Catholic writers was especially important because like Shariati, they combined an often contradictory religious tradition in that one could find both in the Islamic tradition as well as in the Catholic Christian tradition, all kinds of scripture that on the one hand, if you wanted to look for scripture that justified being politically inactive and being completely um, subservient to whatever political authority exists, you could find plenty of scripture that justifies that. But if you wanted to advocate a more kind of politically active, even somewhat socialist interpretation of religion, you could also find many verses which justified that. So just so similar to the Catholics, he combined this religious viewpoint with modern socialism. So Shariati, and in a sense, you could say that Shariati was more influenced by these Catholic thinkers than he was by any contemporary thinkers within Shia Islam, or even within Islam in general. And Shariati often read Esprit, which was a Catholic journal, which 
often um, so featured some Marxist writers and focused on supporting national liberation struggles. And he cited Louis Massignon, who was a Catholic scholar of Islam, who promoted a mutual understanding between Catholics and Muslims, who greatly admired Muslim mystics and was seen as a pioneer in the acceptance of Islam as an Abrahamic faith by the Catholic Church as his single most important intellectual influence. And this is important because um, it shows that populist approaches to religion in Iran did not come from solely from the study of Islam, perhaps not even primarily from the study of traditional Islam, uh, but from the trends that were taking place across the world, for example, in Paris and in Latin America, in addition to in Iran. In this sense, Shariati's approach to Shia Islam was not so much an inward-facing Iranian nationalism, although nationalism in the sense of economic nationalism, as well as seeking a return to Shia Islam as the basis for these new modernist political ideas. But it was also a product of the exchange of political ideas among various exiles in Paris. And so it's as much a product of this kind of international exchange of ideas in exile as it is of some kind of um, Iranian nationalism. And this comes to Shariati's relationship to Marxism, which kind of wavered at times. Shariati personally would often waver between endorsing the concept of Muslim Marxism. And at various times, he actually said that he was in favor of this idea of you know, the connection between Islam and Marxism and that they were not mutually exclusive. But at other times, and especially later on, he would strongly insist that his form of Islamic socialism was sharply distinct from Marxism, the latter of which I would say is more accurate self-characterization, considering that um, his the ideology that he developed was very eclectic and in many ways was often diametrically opposed to certain foundational Marxist conceptions. So for example, one of Shariati's main points was the idea of the intelligentsia, as long as along with the oppressed or the masses in an extremely vague and general sense as the leaders of the coming revolutionary movement. And in this sense, rather than being unique to Iran, he shared many kind of he kind of shared a trajectory with many members of the new left. And he's, he is from this 1960s, 1970s period of time. And he spent much of it in exile in Paris. So it makes sense that he had these ideas that were in common with much of the new left and not so much with Orthodox Marxism. But he believed that because the intelligentsia maintained an educated distance from society, they could act as a mediator and directly change the superstructure, which in turn would transform the mode of production to conform to its ideals. So in this sense, Shariati was firmly an idealist and he would have said so himself, would have characterized himself as such. And he explicitly rejected the materialist conception of history. And so Shariati's socialism was definitely far from being Marxist and it was influenced less by Marx than by the French sociologist, George Gervich, who was the founder of what he called the School of Dialectical Sociology. 
which according to which history was made not by economic classes, but by conscious classes. And so it was according to this kind of, kind of um, perspective that Shariati defined the intelligentsia as the primary class which would take part in um, the coming revolution. In fact, one of Shariati's most influential works was entitled Marxism and Other Western Fallacies. In Iran in particular, the intelligentsia's enlightened and what he called the intelligentsia's enlightened and progressive understanding of Islam would be the driving force behind the coming revolution against the Shah and American imperialism. The intelligentsia would bring about a return to true monotheism, a term which meant in Shariati's ideology, not only the belief in and worship of one God as monotheism is typically understood, but also the oneness of society as a whole. And this oneness of society as a whole also meant the end of the class struggle, the existence of a classless society, which would mean the, the creation of a paradise on earth. So according to Shariati, the goal was not only to achieve the, um, to be able to go to paradise as individual Muslims, but also to create a paradise on earth in which the ideals of Islam would be realized in society, which meant a harmony between, not just a harmony between classes, but the elimination of class society. And so figures in Shia Islam like Hussein, who was killed in a rebellion in Karbala against the Umayyad Caliphate took on a newly political significance. Because it has to be remembered that the clergy in Iran was traditionally very conservative and not only conservative in the sense of politically conservative, but in the sense that they were not in any way particularly involved in politics. Many accepted monarchy as a necessary alternative to political and social unrest, which they thought would come with any kind of struggle against the existing system of government and saw the role of religion as merely shaping the lives of individual Muslims. And the political role of the clergy was seen at the very most as making sure that secular laws did not blatantly violate Islamic law. So the example of Hussein became not only one of the Shia lineage of Imams asserting its authority as Muhammad's legitimate successors against the caliphs accepted by what would become Sunni Islam, but also the example of a martyr against an unjust ruler, which could be generalized and especially applied to the struggle against the Shah and his American backers. So this time in Paris is really when Shariati developed his political ideology. And upon returning to Iran, Shariati spent a few weeks in prison, began a career teaching in Mashhad, which was cut short. And he um, moved to Tehran where he became, he gave lectures at the Hosseinia Ershad Institute and he became its most popular lecturer, where he consistently attracted large crowds and a loyal following. He composed texts which were largely, which largely comprised of summarizations of the lectures which he gave, which were very popular in Tehran. An important text of this period was Religion versus Religion, which he composed in the summer of 1970 as kind of a combination of several lectures he gave that summer claiming that while the secular left saw the primary conflict in Iran as between religion and atheism, which seems somewhat questionable considering that the primary struggle at the time was between 
seemed to be more of a, one that was focused on the Shah and on American imperialism. But in any case, he claims that the secular left saw the primary conflict in Iran as between religion and atheism, whereas the actual conflict was between monotheism and multi-theism. And this was because religion had always shaped society and the struggle had always been the most intense within religion itself, a fight for what the meaning of religion would be and whether it would take a politically active role or whether it would maintain this kind of traditional quietist position. So true monotheism, again, meant not only the adherence to one god, but also the absence of inequality between social classes, as well as between the nations of the core and between the periphery. And so because of this political meaning, monotheism was not necessarily purely a religious term, but in reality, some people who were atheists, but who fought for a classless society could be better monotheists than people who were professed Muslims, but who in reality took the side of the ruling class against the um, masses, which were always the general kind of subject, the masses rather than a concrete kind of conception of class. But, and um, so this was kind of a similar point that he made in his even more influential essay, Red Shiism versus Black Shiism. And Red Shiism, so Black Shiism was kind of conceived as this kind of tradition where oftentimes there would be these processions celebrating the celebrating Muharram or celebrating the, um, not necessarily celebrate, celebrating, but commemorating the martyrdom of Hussein, which were mostly mourning it as an individual tragedy, the loss of this religious figure and something that should be cried over. Whereas he said that um, the, the death of figures such as Imam Hussein should be seen not as a tragedy, but as a call for action. And as positive examples of these figures in the call to fight against the Shah, the aristocracy and the foreign domination of Iran's resources, even if it meant martyrdom. And so martyrdom was not something just to be mourned, but also something even to be sought after if it meant the transformation of society or even if it meant a just fight against oppression. So Shariati was also very pro-utopia. He was very much a utopian socialist in the sense that he saw utopia as, and this is a direct quote from Shariati, as the ideal society that one conceives of in one's own mind and desires and struggles for so that human society takes that form. And he says that all philosophies, religions, and human beings have a different type of utopia in their minds. Paradise is the utopia or ideal society in the mind of the religious man. Plato's utopia was the ideal society for the aristocratic Greeks and intellectuals of his age. The city of God of St. Augustine are all ideal societies. Essentially, the existence of an imaginary society proves that the human being is always moving from the present situation to a more desirable situation. Whether it be imaginary, scientific, the utopia of Plato or the classless society of Marx. And it was also important to Shariati's ideology, the conception of the ideal human being, which would be willfully constructed according to an ideological rather than a product of economic and social changes. So in many ways, Shariati was influenced by Marxism in that he sought this kind of classless society that would be a result of a conscious class struggle and 
although he saw it more as a political struggle, a struggle between political classes rather than economic classes. And he saw, um, he thought that there would be a society that's willfully constructed from an ideal rather than that is a product of the changes that come from, um, anyway, revolution. So Shariati definitely played in, he died in 1977. And although he died of a heart attack, many speculate that he was the victim of an attack by Savak. But in any case, he never witnessed the Islamic revolution or the Iranian revolution, but yet he played in his ideas were so influential that he's often called the ideologue of the Iranian revolution. And I say that somewhat critically because again, on the one hand, he was in many ways not able to gain the upper hand in ideologically influencing the Iranian revolution. And Khomeini and more traditional kind of religious authorities were much more successful in doing so and in suppressing the, the left in general. But, um, and also that he, um, that his ideas kind of go beyond that to also influencing opponents of the Islamic Republic, even those that wholeheartedly embraced US imperialism, such as MEK. So Khomeini himself never explicitly embraced Shariati. In fact, there's some noted incidents of him rejecting followers of Shariati. But much of the populist rhetoric that characterized Khomeini's public pronouncement in the 1970s and soon after the revolution were directly borrowed from Shariati. For example, the phrase, every day is Karbala, every land is Ashura, was popularized by Ali Shariati, although it was originally a 19th century slogan, but it definitely gained popularity directly from Ali Shariati's lectures. And it became a, a key slogan of Khomeini's followers and of, of supporters of Khomeini's legacy today, of supporters of the Islamic Republic today. But initially the constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which um, Irvan Abrahamian points out, resembles the constitution of the French Fifth Republic much more than any historical Islamic government document, called for the nationalization of key industries. But from the beginning, Khomeini emphasized the sacred right to private property under Islam, and the importance of the bazaris, including both middle-class merchants and highly successful, wealthy, and influential members of the national bourgeoisie to the Islamic revolution. So Khomeini and his followers, who often claimed later on a lineage to Shariati or an adherence to Shariati, were very, very careful not to alienate the middle class or even the bourgeois, even like higher um, kind of influential business members of the business community in Iran because they saw them as very much central to the success of the Iranian revolution and a source of much of its support. And later on, even this part of the constitution, which was often, um, you know, they were often kind of name only appeals to the workers in Iran while actually suppressing workers and murdering many communists who had previously supported the Iranian, who had previously been involved in the Iranian revolution. Um, later on, this part of the constitution, which supported nationalization of key industries was gotten rid of under 
the next Supreme Leader, who is currently the Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, and privatization continued at a rapid pace, even gaining Iran the praise of the IMF for taking an ideal approach to privatization as a developing economy. So while Shariati, who died in 1977, was embraced in rhetoric by the Islamic Republic, in practice, the Islamic Republic was very much against Shariati's idea of classless monotheism and instead strongly embraced capitalism, even while kind of masking it under kind of an anti-imperialist rhetoric and the suppression of workers and the murder of communists and private property was always taken as a divinely given right. Well, so as Yasmin says, the Mujahideen Kalg, which is currently promoted by neocons, Republicans, they also claim Shariati as basically their foundational influence. And their political organization, which claim his legacy, but which today are really nothing more than a bizarre cult, which promote US imperialist aims and are in active contact and promoted by US Republican politicians. So it kind of shows the vagueness of Shariati's ideas. And on the one hand, you can say that the Islamic Republic, as well as MEK, have unfairly claimed Shariati for their own aims, whether it's of establishing um, a cons ultimately conservative and pro-capitalist theocracy, or of promoting US imperialism, and of being totally in line with sanctions against Iran, which harm the people of Iran and um, not the government. It can be said that this was not only the fault of these groups, but can be said to be a consequence of Shariati's, of the vagueness of Shariati's ideas and of the lack of clarity he had in assembling any kind of political program or any kind of political organization. His failure to do so at all. In the end, Khomeini and his followers were much more successful in their, impl in their implementation of vague religious and social populism and played the deciding role in the revolution. Shariati's ideas are ultimately only a footnote of what the, the Iranian revolution could have been, but wasn't. And that's the end of what I have to say for now, but we can move on to questions and I'll answer some questions. 